So who knew that this would be the party that everyone would go home and have sex after? <laughs> to describe the advertising executives of Madison Avenue. They coined it. What's Ken's wife's name? I can't remember. Welcome to They Coined It. I'm Roberta Lip. I'm Dan Jasper. And we cover Mad Men episode by episode. You guys can support us if you would like on Patreon. That's at patreon.com slash theycoinditpod. Extra episodes, early episodes... And you can follow us and chat with us. We're over on Facebook where we interact really not enough. And I owe some people some some responses. But we're mostly on Twitter and Instagram at TCI Mad Men Pod. And Dan, I've been doing some TikToks. TikToking? <laughs> doing a little bit of TikTok, talking about Mad Men and occasionally my cat or whatever. That's the housekeeping. So... Kudos to the makeup department. Holy shit. Oh, for right? the special Single effects 30? makeup? Yeah. God damn. Take a look when Lane is in his office after the brouhaha. Uh, his knuckles are totally skinned and bloodied. And it looks totally, it looks like he just punched Pete in the face. <laughs> it was really good. It wasn't just schlepped on there, which is kind of how it usually looks, especially on a TV show. It's really fantastic. I mean, it, like the faces and the swelling and the, you can see basically Lane's knuckles imprinted on Pete's head in the elevator. It's really good. It's very real. No, it was great. Signal 30, written by Frank Pearson. Do you know who Frank Pearson is, Roberta? I don't. Am I? Whoops. Frank Pearson wrote Dog Day Afternoon. This fucking guy is an Academy Award winning screenwriter. This is Matt Weiner going through his childhood fantasies well in, in a sense frank pearson uh was a consultant on mad men i mean he's this was the basically i think the last thing he wrote in his career was this episode i do know that he died i just never remembered his name yeah he died like a few months after this aired so when i was a kid i went to a lot of movies and mostly our dad took us to the movies all the time Every other weekend is was that schedule. But there my dad was, yeah. was a severe asthmatic. So his activities were sort of restricted. So we were always Stayed going the to the movies. Well, and just and not moving around, not running around. So we always went to the movies. And, you know, there was a lot fewer movies to go see. How old and, were you, Roberta, when he took you to see Talk I mean, I can't remember the year of the film, but I'm probably six or seven years old. Like, like and it, I... Loved it. That's the fascinating thing to the me. The 70s were the most age-inappropriate decade, and yet, like, somehow it worked. But I, I can remember that film coming through my very young filter, and it all worked. I thought it was hilarious that he had a, a wife who wasn't – who he had two wives, and one of them was a man, and sorry, trans folks. It's an incredibly fabulous queer movie – but it is, right. of course, played by... Based on a true story, yeah. Yeah, played by a man. Um, played by Chris Sarandon, who mm. was brilliant. King Humperdinck. Um, 
No, I it, I mean, to me, it was funny. To me, Al Pacino's character was endearing. To me, John Cazale as Sal was hilarious. Like, it worked yeah. for little me. Um, anyway. But I never, <laughs> Frank Pearson, just that name never stuck with me. Amazing. And Matthew Weiner, directed by <laughs> John Slattery. Yes, that John Slattery. Wait, Air date. wait, who? No, sorry. <laughs> Aired on April 15th, 2012, and it takes place July 30th through sometime shortly after August 8th, 1966. So, Signal 30 is the episode where Lane stumbles into a lead for Jaguar's U.S. business. Trudy wills a dinner party into existence. <laughs> Ken gets outed as a writer once again. Peter has a flirtation with his driver's ed classmate. Pete, Roger, and Don end up entertaining the Jaguar decision maker on a night on the town. Lane and Pete have a uh, Marquess of Queensbury fist fight in the conference room. <laughs> uh, probably what it's most known for. And look, this one, I'll tell you what, this is this episode is the reason why it's great to do this podcast. Hmm. It was nowhere on my radar. I remembered it for nothing. I could not remember it as the fist fight episode, frankly. I remembered it as the driver's ed. I re- yeah, exactly. I think of the the film, yeah. right? But even still, it wasn't like, oh, this is such a great episode or or it was that it's not it's not like the suitcase or hobo code or any of those for me. It meant nothing. It meant nothing. And rewatching it for this discussion, it is one of the top episodes. I am absolutely blown away by this episode. So I'm on fire with this because Signal 30, it just went right past me the first time. I think this was a, a, a fan revered, a, a critic and fan revered episode. I believe it was. Yeah, I, I, I was, I, everyone liked it more than me. That was my, my take. Oh, that, that could be. I just, I think, uh, I also think we're getting old and our, our memories on some of these later ones are fading. <laughs> And and I was also thinking, you know, it's episode five in the season. I think, and we'll keep checking, but I think with the exception of the fog, episode five is always sort of the flipper, the moment that it, it shifts into a different gear. 5G. Right. The early episodes are sort of slowly going up that roller coaster and you don't know what what's up at the top view, right? <laughs> and now suddenly Truly. we're at least, you know, up on something. We still never know what's coming. Things but. are beginning to collect together. One of which, which of course we'll get to, is Lane. That's been brewing. The Peter thing, the Roger thing, but also this gritty, gruesome life in your face. We've been talking about it kind of intruding, starting with a little kiss, the first scene. Now it's it's almost like without anything significant in the way of plot happening, it's kind of like the levee breaks in terms of the world rushing in. That that's how it's beginning to feel to me. Some of that I knew at the time and remember as we watched. It feels even more to that point now. Just more and more of the outside world, the outside world and an uncontrollable the inability to control what you keep away from you is just it's all coming down. So that that to me is a lot of what's happening here. And that's the the grittiness and that's the film that we see and that's the fist fight and that's Whorehouses and all this, all this grittiness that's in this episode is a big part of that. First of all, the the teenage girl in the driver's ed class. This is the first time you see a young person talking about 
the panic of the outside world intruder, right? Like she's now yeah. considering- Parents don't want me to go to school, right? You know, she's considering it. She's thinking they might be right. So it's the first time we've seen that next generation express that concern. It has seemed so far like there's a divider there. Like the ugliness is only intruding on the older generations. And now what we're seeing, <laughs> of course, is Peter is becoming part of the older generation. Everything's getting yeah. pushed up. But still, somebody younger now afraid, that's new. I love, as you're talking about that, I'm picturing when Trudy is at the head of the table saying, you know, the hostess still gets to <laughs> determine what we talk about, right? However however she says that. So she's still up here in my little fortress. Nothing can intrude. Cascab, yeah. We should go some Sunday soon. We'd be VIPs. Who's going to drive? We'll take turns. Give each other lessons. Driver's ed. Pete's there because he has to get a license because he's no longer a city dweller. And it puts him in this juxtaposition with high schoolers who are like, you know, out in the country, <laughs> out in the suburbs, getting their license, just like I know I did and, and probably you too, but at that age. I love just the the very organic ability of the show to put Pete in a high school classroom with with that girl who's this, you know, attractive, attractive high schooler. Who he, because he's Pete, he can't not flirt with her and try and see if there's an angle for him to, to get lucky. It's pretty unpleasant. I mean, she's she's very well cast. She's absolutely gorgeous and absolutely a teenager. Yeah, it does, doesn't feel an, a, a minute older than 18 or whatever age. No, or so, it's probably 16. Yeah. Uh, 15 or 16. I don't, yeah, I don't know the true. age. At that time. Yeah, I don't yeah. know the age then for, the, for getting your license. It's just rough to watch him. This episode is rough to watch with him and women. Absolutely. We didn't know that this is where Pete is headed. I mean, we could suspect it. I'm not saying that, but he's been being good ever since. Yeah. You know, he raped the nanny. Oh, then. Yeah. Uh, but ever since then, he's been as far as we've seen, I think. Was there is there one I forget? Well, we know he's dissatisfied. That 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 kind of um, the word that I didn't know how it was pronounced until someone told me on we. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we we Pete's been having this ennui now for really you want to say the whole series, but you know the move out to the to the suburbs has really peaked it for him. He's this he's this dissatisfied. And look, if you're a city kid and you love the city and you don't want to move out of the city and you do it for your wife and because you're starting a family, you might be miserable for a few months. That's that's not uncommon. I live in Maplewood, New Jersey, where people move from Brooklyn. You know. 10 new residents a day from from the five boroughs at a minimum. And they all say the same thing. And they're all miserable for a little while when they when they realize, you know, that it's not a walk, a walk, a block and a half to the store or something. So so that's a real thing. Let's distinguish that Pete's version of misery is sure, there's an adjustment when you move to the suburbs. If you didn't want to, you're sacrificing some things. You're gaining some other things. And part of what you're gaining is is a better life for your family. Pete won't get over it. I mean, it took him this long to, to even look at getting a license, to even oh, consider yeah. that, you know, it's time that I that I need a car here. I and mean, I'm sure Trudy insisted. There's a second baby on the way. Yeah. You know, so, uh, yeah, it's time. No, it all it all fits in Pete's world. I mean, it's all there. What I'm what I'm trying to get at is that as viewers and as a character development, you don't know where that ennui is going to take the character. He could adjust. 
But because it's Pete Campbell, <laughs> because this is Mad Men and this is the world that we're observing, Pete's dissatisfaction takes him to ugly places. And we're we're just seeing some of that. So we're in this driver's ed class. The film is the is the first metaphor for everything and the, you know, the scariness and that, like you said, the outside the outside world sort of encroaching and being forced on you. You know, nobody ever drove better from seeing those films. <laughs> <laughs> It's amazing. The reefer madness didn't work. The None of it, you know. Right. The sperm, 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 sperm didn't work. Anyway. <laughs> different class, but I think the, yeah, your, point, your point is made. <laughs> right. <laughs> the episode opens with Pete laying awake, listening to the dripping sink. He says to Trudy, does it go like that all day? <laughs> right. And Trudy says, I suppose, but I don't hear it. And to me, that's yeah. their marriage. Yeah. Good. She's with a miserable man who's going to take it all out on her. And she doesn't hear it. She's fine. She's oh, good. that's great. Yeah. And the episode ends with a sound of a drip. It, yeah, the, the dripping is the last, uh, the last the episode sound. leading into Ode to Joy. <laughs> Beethoven's Ode to Joy. So, <laughs> you know... Whoever's coming up with this shit on that level, I'm just I'm blown away. Well, just I'll just I'll just cut to the chase right there. But yeah, I, I that's really great what you say about the drip. I, I looked at it more as uh, you know, the telltale sink for Pete. Oh, very <laughs> much know? too. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, out there in Costco. But but yeah, I think and I think they're not they're not dissimilar, right? They're 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 things that are sort of building up drip by drip, drop by drop on on anxieties and on a marriage and things like that. And Trudy is able to truly bombard herself, or I should say, uh, uh, guard herself against that somehow. And that's denial. And that's a whole bunch of things. But Trudy and Pete have different approaches to it. And it's, it's pretty, it's a, it's a great metaphor. And I love it. So I actually wanted to look up ennui because it, I think that Pete would describe himself with ennui as ennui. The, it's uh, would or a, would not. Would. I think Pete would assign this to himself. It is a feeling of listlessness and dissatisfaction arising from a lack of occupation or excitement. I think, I mean, maybe that's Pete, but to me, that's Lane. Lane is the okay. one who's really got this cloud of ennui over his head. And let's talk about what Lane's doing this episode. Mm. Lane's got a bar to go to. Yeah, Rebecca drags him to watch the World Cup. And this was 1966. It was uh, England, not not UK, but England versus Germany in the finals for the World Cup. So that's what the, the moment is. Seems like it went well for England. If, I'm, <laughs> sure. if I was reading this correctly. <laughs> Their last World Cup victory, yeah. It was really notable – you know, he basically says, I'll put on a brave face for you. I'll put on a good face for you. I don't remember the line. And then the next, and then it's cut to his face, you know, with a practically a joker grin of laughter at the bar, like, ah! and the, the excitement of winning. I mean, it was an incredible cut. It was an incredible edit. Right. Yeah. For effect. And I've brought this up before. I, I think I think Lane's drinking is 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 escalated, has shifted. I think if you watch him, there's always a drink in his hand, or or he's always looking for one. And I, that's new this season. But he goes kicking and screaming, and he ends up laughing and screaming at this at this party and you know this bar event, this pub. 
and connecting with now this this new potential client. Yeah, and that that client potentially is Jaguar. Before we get to the the Jaguar piece of it, it's it's heartening, I think, on the surface to watch Lane. We define Lane as someone who is so desperate to become American. In fact, maybe he's desperate to become anything mm. in his own life. And the fact that he landed in New York and found a home and this had these marriage troubles, he's back reconciled with his wife, at least on the surface. It's great to see – we, we haven't seen the Lane who is proud to be British, proud mm. to, 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 to have that identity and that component of himself. We don't see that at all. Until now, and that's that. That was also part of the the shock value, I think, of him with the scarf and the hat and and singing "God Save the Queen" and all that. I mean, that's it, it was it was fun as a viewer, but I think it, it said something about the character too, because it was out of character to this point. I don't know if it was pride, but it was certainly uh, the closest to his uh, original environment. That we've ever yeah. seen him and just being, yeah. you know, he doesn't have to think about how to do that stuff. Well, as Rebecca said, we'll be with all the other immigrants, right? Yes, so yes. It's, it's a little piece of home, which he probably didn't expect to enjoy so much. And I think that's so that's so realistic, right? When you're out of your element and you're doing all you can to adjust and you're you're proud of your adjusting, right? Whatever that new environment is. And then you get a little taste of back home or the previous one and you – you're shocked at how much you <laughs> you enjoy or revel in being with the, your familiar surroundings. And I think that was amazing. And visually, it was a much richer environment, the dark pub and the, the yeah. you know, the smoky pub and the, the and like, you, you know, the, the, the scar- scarf, all that just, it just was a very rich, full stage, if you will, compared to the very stark office with the one little Mets banner we see him in at the end of the episode, <laughs> right. you know. That Mets banner always gets a lot of attention, but I never noticed before how just that's all there was. It was just sort of this empty, (laughs) this empty, cold looking office. Lane's trying. It's Lane trying. Lane is trying. But he doesn't have much of a, he doesn't have much there. So, so he does. He has this amazing, and and I think part of that wonderful experience, that esprit de corps that he's a part of, this is my foreign language episode. I don't know what word you just said, but that's okay. Esprit de corps. No, he's he's having fun with his mates. He's the the, the morale is high. He's with the, with the group and every high spirits. And I think part of that is when, or that that's still part of him when their friend uh, reveals that he's works for Jaguar and we should talk with you guys and let's get let's you know. See, and, and it's funny he says, Lane, you're not on accounts, are you? Right. And Lane says, No, I'm finances. Have your account guy call me. And Lane says, my name's on the door. Which is not an inappropriate thing to say. That's right. Right? We're sitting here. I'm perfectly qualified to handle your your business or your get this thing rolling. Fine. But this, you know, what's the the meme right now? I understood the assignment. (laughs) He under the, the, the Jaguar guy understood the assignment. Lane did not understand the assignment. The assignment was, I want to be treated like a client. That's right. Not your, not your, not a family friend. And for, right. And further down the road, we see, you know, further down the road in this episode, we see exactly what that means exactly to him, what exactly <laughs> what kind of client he wants to be treated like. Which, by the way, is 
Here's another form. De rigueur. (laughs) This is not the first client who wants to be treated like a client at an ad agency. I mean, this is the standard operating procedure. So this guy has not his first rodeo. So when he says, have your account guy call me, I want to be taken out and perhaps taken to a whorehouse at some point. (laughs) There's some code there for how I want to be treated in this. So it's all it's all right there in that first conversation that there's a disconnect that Lane is not appreciating. I think there, the disconnect is even deeper because one of the things that keeps coming up is Lane, you already mentioned this is his friend. I don't think so. I think he barely knows this guy. I think Lane <laughs> is projecting so much connection. He's projecting and projecting and projecting. This is my friend. At the end of the episode, my friend would never. And yeah. and in the dinner, that when Lane takes him for beef... <laughs> We go from steak in the suburbs to beef. It was another great edit. Um, And he's doing all the Roger tricks. And I'm I'm jumping. We'll get back to this. All of that is projection as well. You're like me. So everything, you know, that's part of it is just like he's bad at reading people. But part of it, I felt this real desperation in the like, I know this guy. I'm connected with this guy. This guy is my friend. Obviously, there is no such thing happening. Well, he's he, I think he's still carrying with him that spirit of the bar and being country mates and and having that thing in common, but that ends at the door at the door of the bar. You know, you 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 leave and go out and in, back into your life and I don't know you. <laughs> we were yeah. we were having drinks, we were cheering for our team, but that's kind of it. And you're right. He he was overestimating what that relationship is for sure. It ends with the hangover. Uh-huh. You know, uh-huh. you're drunk in yeah. a bar, you're fully bonded. And totally. Lane took that as, I, I can do something important here. No, no question. And I think, I think um, that's, he's off on the wrong foot just from the get-go because of that. That's what sets him out on this, on this path that does not, <laughs> leads back to him and his, and his, and his house, but not to good things. Right. Um, but we will certainly circle back to that. So Lane brings this to the office, right? They have their they have their uh, their status meeting, and a new business. Nope, 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 nope. They get yeah, uh, they start to get up. Worth mentioning, there is no new business at this agency. Let's let's make a note of that. Lane, you know, waiting, really watching as they all start to get up because he's he, to prove to himself, like I know they'll never think it's going to come from me. Well, hello, whoopa! Yes, exactly. <laughs> I let have me, new business. Let me show you what I got in my pocket. And they're all like. Okay. Well, Pete's like, are you going on leave again? I like that one. <laughs> that was my <laughs> Yeah, that was funny. But then, but Pete was awful. I don't, the whole thing with Pete and Lane, which ends how it ends in this episode, I don't understand Pete's shitting all over this account the way he did. And I, I don't know if if he, I mean, is he just taking out all his misery on just, and, and you're just like, you're next, Lane? Yeah, I, th- I think when Pete's miserable, everybody's miserable. That's just, that's Pete being Pete. I mean, he started by giving him shit in in the lane, you know, like imitating lane. Like, oh, well, then we're going to need 10 new writers and da, 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 right? He starts laning him. Oh, right. The Mohawk thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it really, really, it starts with the Mohawk thing. That, that even more specifically, yes. Lane was hesitant to hire anybody new. Like, I think Roger, you know, got, got Ginsburg hired. But other than that, he pissed on Pete's parade with, with Mohawk a little bit. Right. So he turns the table and he does that. Then ha ha ha, we get over that. But then 
he just keeps going. This is a shitty car. It's three million. And, and it, it just. And Don's like, but it's a car. Yeah. Like, voice of reason. Yeah. It was it was it was intense. It was uh, Pete's going for Lane was it was intense. It was ugly. It was childish. And it was entirely believable. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it's um, I just couldn't figure out why. But maybe it's maybe he really just wants to be the only account guy. And then so that yeah. he can so that he can be a martyr about being the only account guy. I don't know. It was weird. Yeah, l- listen, it's, and, and I think it's the story of of the business that you have. All, remember when Pete tried to be a creative guy and Don cut him off at the knees? Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, that was New Amsterdam. Right. So so I think it's everyone, you know, stay in your lane is is a real is a real thing. And the finance guy, you look, if Lane came in there and said, hey, guess what? I just had a great, you know, weekend experience watching the World Cup with the guy, the decision maker, a Jaguar. Guys, here's his number. He's expecting your call. Yeah. Pete's going to be fine with that. Right. Right. Um, I love the meeting breaks. And uh, Joan says, I love that car. Roger gives her such a look. (laughs) Like... It was, it's just wonderful. Uh, watch it again. Like, it's just this fabulous look. Like, she can't love anything and yeah. Roger doesn't notice. She right. can't get excited, if you will, about anything and Roger everybody's doesn't. Everybody's miserable. Just <laughs> right. everybody's fucking right. miserable. Miserable and getting more miserable. The trajectory is, it's going down to the right. <laughs> Across the board. Look, most people will tell you it's hard to make a mistake. I mean, you just lie. But that won't get you anywhere. The beauty of this dinner is that if you do it right, you can actually have him tell you all the answers. In fact, I once got a guy from Dr. Scholl's to fill it out for me. (laughs) The guys decide to intervene, and then there's this incredible scene with Roger and Lane. And it's this longer story, this longer thread in the show about what does an account guy do? What is this about? What is your role? You're not drawing the pictures. You're not taking the photographs. You're not writing the copy. From day one, you've been saying this, that there's that this is this fascinating question about what does an account guy do? Mm. But also from day one, you've been saying, and Roger is brilliant at it. Mm-hmm. This is the first time I really got that Roger is brilliant at it, and he's just not doing it. This was, <laughs> I mean, this was brilliant. This coaching sure. sec- session was, I mean, he had a million tricks up his sleeve, and they were all... And they and they were just all great. And then compare and then comparing it. It's the same as you do with a girl. And he's like, right. flatter her. He's like, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, you know, this is it's not just a class, it's a master class. It That's is what I'm gradu- saying. It is a graduate level. And to throw Lane in, look, Lane's a big boy, and this he claims this guy's his buddy. So Roger's not gonna like tell him he can't do it. He's gonna give him, he's gonna lay it all out for him. But but it was too much for a guy like Lane. Lane was trying to execute this this program and he could not. He was asking these awkward questions and coming off obvious before even realizing that this guy was never going to reveal himself to him. Yeah, no, 100%. Um, Roger was giving a master class. There was no way Lane was going to be able to keep up with it. But it wasn't that they were letting him do it. Lane, he was not budging. He was not yeah. letting them. You know, he was cock blocking. He was because he felt that his he identified with this guy so strongly and incorrectly. But it was kind of like, no, 
you guys aren't British. You didn't bond with him over the World Cup. I did. That makes me the one to close this account. And it's, yeah, sorry, the world doesn't work that way. So Don leaves that meeting. (laughs) And there's Megan at his typewriter. And I would like to take a moment because I was trying to think about Well, how exactly did this come to pass? I mean, it's just like one more sort of, you know, chink in the chunk of the of of how things are very different for Megan Draper than any other copy. You know how the two of them are not pretending not to be married. And Ginsburg's not sitting at his desk. Yeah, You know, she's like, sorry, I'll be done in a minute. But it wasn't like, sorry, sorry, wasn't it? There was no panic. It was like Mm. it was just, you know, I'll get out of your way in a minute. But so I was like, was she complaining about not having enough privacy or not having a good desk. We don't even know where she, mm. where she sits, right? And right. and Don said, oh, you can use my office anytime. Did she ask him? I mean, just anyway, it's fine. There's a lot to fill in from the viewer yeah. on that. I mean, yeah. it, you know, it's, but it's it was great. It was a great touch. Megan at Don Draper's, you know, <laughs> coupon writer at Don Draper's desk. <laughs> right. Was amazing. But it's a a great organic way to get Megan and Don talking about this Trudy thing. It's great. Right? Uh, so it's evident that... So Trudy played them. Well, she played them, but only in so much as she just had... She had a goal. <laughs> she, she had... She was she was going to get them... Get them to her house for this dinner. Whatever it took. And uh, if it took playing them, then she'll play them. And I think Don, who knows he's being played, respects the hell out of it. I mean, the the look on his face when she hangs up or they they get off the call is one of like, huh, all right, how about that? He's abs- he's fully charmed by her, as he should no be. Question. She was she was she was her was her master class. And yeah, that's <laughs> and right. he says it right. If I if I could get your husband to close like this, you know. And she's um, that was when they get to the house, and she, and she's and she doesn't miss a beat. You know, you know that's not true. She's perfect. But it's painting this picture that's been started long ago of Pete and Trudy as this this power couple, if you will, but this amazing team, this amazing team where she is going to be the woman behind the man. She supports him in every which way. She, she sees her role as being 100% in his corner, no questions asked. And is so smart and is so talented at that, among probably many other things that are <laughs> unexplored. But the fact is, she's really good at what she has set her mind to. So this is the the fullest expression of that that we've seen. And we've seen a few from Trudy already. But she's really she, – she's, look, she's, she's in her country house. She's got her baby. <laughs> she, she is ready to go. This is her time to shine. And she knows it. And she's ready to it. Ready to do it. Before I, we get to country house, country versus suburbs is an interesting little thing that was happening at the dinner party. I do want to kind of roll it back to Don and Megan getting ready for this party. Ooh, yeah. This is where we get the line. Saturday night in the suburbs really wa- makes you really want to blow your brains out. And we've already <laughs> seen Don drawing the noose. Yeah. No, the, the fans in real time. I mean, this isn't these aren't the first indications really from. From Marriage of Figaro, from, you know, Don sitting and gazing at the train uh, before he goes home with Polly Dog. The, uh, suicide has been looming 
But at this point, the fans are going nuts. It's going to be Megan. You know, Megan was out on the balcony. So I just want to, I didn't want to not mention those two. Yeah. No, that was, that definitely was. And to me, it doesn't play now. I don't, I mean, the news obviously is the news, but like, I'm not sitting there going on this time around, um, thinking that, that death is imminent. It just doesn't, it doesn't have the same weight. Maybe it's because it's not. I mean, it is week to week in that we're, in that we're going through it now. People were wondering what was coming. We're not wondering what's coming. Right. I suppose so. I mean, this I is that's so. just, this is just like. I guess I'm enjoying it more in some respects. So you've got them, you know, getting ready to go to the country or the, the suburbs. Put on the sports coat. It's the country. And oh. it was a great line. <laughs> and then when we see them, they're all in these sports coats. But also, she's still counting his drinks. But now she's not his secretary. Oh, right. Yeah. And that was that was interesting to me. Like, oh, I see. You're now you're in charge of how how drunk or sober Don is. Oof, that's a job. And Don, Don has that line. I, I want to ring the doorbell with my chin, <laughs> which is a wonderful visual. <laughs> it's Don the writer. I'm going to devil some eggs if the girls want to help. Megan, you want to take Don's drink order? Big and brown. Dinner and drinks at the Campbell's. Neither of the Drapers have remembered Cynthia's name. That was hilarious. <laughs> Absolutely was really hilarious. Good. Megan, Cynthia. Oh, oops. Oops. Don, you <laughs> gives her the when she she greets him. He's like you. I think this is largely an episode about satisfaction and being satisfied, and not being satisfied. And you know, a friend of the show, Lisa M. Lilly. By the way, Lisa and I are planning on doing a bonus Buffy discussion, which we'll put in the Patreon. So Buffy fans will have a fun thing, and I don't have a date for that yet. Um, but anyway, Lisa Lisa had written me and said, you know, I think a theme for this season is everybody wants what they can't have. And I started to really see that in this episode. It's a lot. You're really seeing it in this party. And the first thing I couldn't, I can't digest is how thirsty Pete is <laughs> when yeah, it comes right. to Don. And like, so not cool. Like, he was smooth with that teenage girl, even though I think she was just humoring him. <laughs> but he was not smooth with Don Draper. It was weird and gross. Satisfaction certainly is the this this cloud over every or dissatisfaction, as the case may be, over everything, certainly for the season. I think Lisa's really right about that. Within this episode, though, I think the the shade that's explored in particular and Roger says it to 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 Ken later on. It's on the nose. When this job is good, it satisfies every need. Hmm. I remember, which is the old versus young thing. But but when this job is good, it satisfies every need. You know, and I think Signal Thirty is about exploding that myth. Hmm. It does. It, it it's not supposed to. There are so many different references to how work is supposed to satisfy your home life and maybe vice versa, which is why there's a work dinner party in the middle of this episode, right. <laughs> you know, um, and the team that Trudy and Pete have made and make, you know, this is like this coming out party almost in, in, with them. Not just work is supposed to satisfy every need, but should it? That to me is the question that's being explored here. Not just does it, but should it? Should you be, you know, worked every need? Really going to whorehouse with the with the, with the jaguar guy and cheating on the family? That's the that's how this is supposed to go. That's part of that's what you're saying is satisfying, 
Roger? I mean, Pete says later in the elevator at the end. We're supposed to be friends. We're supposed to be friends. And I'm like, what? Who? Maybe not. I, maybe not, Peter. Who, who? Where'd that come from? Who told you maybe that? Just, maybe just work with the. Yeah, they're your partners. That's a legal distinction. So <laughs> weird. Not, that was a. Yeah. Right. So, so to me, it's that exploration of the question, is work supposed to satisfy every need? And it's kind of like, well, when you take that too far, when you make that literal, literally every need, no. Well, Ken's been a hard no to that for a while now. Exactly. Ken is on the other side of that fence. Last season, he wasn't going to bring his father-in-law golfing for the uh, the American Cancer Society thing. Yeah, he's talking about work-life balance before that phrase exists. That's what he's been talking no about for a while. And you said he stays middle management, and that's totally fine And the writing him. for him. And now we know he's writing again, and he's doing a whole thing. It's this outlet, and it's this outlet that that he's very clear that what it does for him. Work doesn't give me this. Even my marriage doesn't give me this. But when I can work it all correctly and make sure everything is tended to, right? My, what do you say? My, my dinners become drinks and I have time to, to write at night. My dinners become drinks and I keep it to one. So I'm clear enough to go home and write. So he's out there acknowledging, clear-eyed, because he's not drinking at dinner, uh, having multiple drinks, that, that not everything is going to do everything for you. My marriage isn't going to satisfy my creative outlet. My work isn't going to satisfy what my marriage should be. Like, Ken knows all this. And that's why I think he spent about two seconds debating what Roger told him before coming up with a new surname <laughs> to write under. Because when he when he talked to um, – you could tell when Cynthia was talking about his writing how, how, how um, embarrassed Ken was because he's like, oh, I can't. They, <laughs> this is this is going to come back to me. I'm going to get shit for this, not because of people being jealous, like it was back in season. Yeah, not one. embarrassed, like shit. You just outed me, and it's a problem. That's what I mean. Like he knows this is this is not going to. It's going to be well. viewed as a conflict. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to get called into Roger's office. Is what he knows. So he instinctively understands that it has to be kept separate and secret. But I don't think for a second he considered not writing. No, he he really writes because he needs to write. You could you saw that at the end. Absolutely. And about kids, I'll just mention this too, which I, I love about – I became in love with this episode for this reason. You know, we, we heard the two stories he wrote in season one, something about a roughneck, I don't know, <laughs> a, a, a truck driver and something about tapping a, a, tr- a maple tree in Vermont or frozen winter day, right? And so we don't know anything about the plots. We don't know. But they're like intriguing. And they're they're seemingly intricate. This that first one about a family takes them in or something. It was just something vague, but not uninteresting. And now here we get we then we see a little more with the gold violin, just a touch of his writing there. And beautiful music, but he can't play it, and that's intriguing too. And now there's a, there's a bunch of references to his stories. And Pete says that thing about you know the tiny orchestra in the in the hi fi that they're looking at, and Pete makes the comment. And that's a creative thing to observe. You open it up and you expect to see a tiny little. But Ken sees it as a story. Yeah. You know, Ken now can Ken's the one that can process that into being a work of art, into being his work. And that's clearly what he, you know, the voiceover at the end. But then there's uh, Peggy also references. Oh, I read the punishment of X four. Like we don't know what these things are. Well, he's got a new genre, although. 
fantasy and sci-fi. The yeah. new guy is maybe the new the new writer at the end is maybe a different genre now. Possibly. I also wanted to bring up that the story that he does share about at the dinner table with the robot. Yeah, with the bridge. Blowing up, blowing up the bridge. The question is like, why did he do that? And the answer is because he could, essentially. And to me, that was Ken exercising the power that he has. Mm. But it's also Charles Whitman. That's a last name. That was a name that Don <laughs> threw right out. That was a great moment. I don't know. I'm sure that had to be serendipity in terms of the writing, right? That sure. Was, <laughs> that but was, who's gonna who's gonna feel, let's have a blank and Don fill that well, one. Who's in. gonna let that go by? Is my point. <laughs> you know, that's that's the other side of the little man thinking he has no power and and yeah. wants to make some kind of an impact on the world is is murdering. Well, Cynthia brings up the story as saying Ken predicted this. Right. That was how it came about, right? So that's the, right. the link right. is of course. already there. Whether that was what Ken thought or not, um, you know, Cynthia certainly saw it that way. And it is. It's fascinating. You know, the writing to me is that actually the heart of this episode. Mm. It may not seem like it, but to me, that ability to get your needs met without expecting any one thing to be all-encompassing or sat- nothing's going to satisfy all your needs. Life doesn't work that way. America doesn't work that way. Is there anything that's life supposed to Life doesn't work sa- that way. Life, right, exactly. And, and this country in terms of our – the way we structure things and, and if you're working for anyone, <laughs> doing anything in any capacity, all of your needs as a human being are not going to be met. Just won't. That's why there's other things. That's why there's other interests and, and what have you. So Ken is this a little bit of a – if I'm using this word right – a paragon of, of how to handle French? these things. <laughs> it's not French. It's uh, it's uh, Dutch-Romanian. JK. But, but no, I, I really think that Ken is a little bit of a beacon on this topic that we're to look at and go, well, he gets it. No one else gets it. Roger doesn't get it. Don even doesn't get it. Pete certainly is way 180 degrees from getting it. Lane doesn't get it. So it, it's – but there's this constant – and that's what runs through the episode for sure is this mix of – can I make my life satisfy my work? Can I make my work satisfy my life? And the answer is 100% of the time, no. When everything works just perfectly, sure. Now and again. But no job satisfies every need. Let's take a quick break. We have more, we have more dinner to cover <laughs> because the sink and the handyman. And then uh, there's a fight to come back to. So we'll see you there. That baby is cute. Uh, Tess. Tess of the yes. Durbervilles? <laughs> Tess of the Campbells. That baby is precious. I liked her. She's got the little pout. It's good. She cried on cue. You know, in the in the in the great tradition of of this of this era or at least for wasps of this era, children are out of sight, babies are out of sight. Oh yeah. Can you imagine today having a dinner party and people haven't met the baby and not wanting and not everybody not seeing the, you know, even the people that are like, oh, God, I hate meeting people's babies. You know what I, I mean? Know. Like, no. of course you meet the baby. And the word is meet, not see. Right. Like, it's just yeah. I want you to meet Tess. This is she's wonderful. She's yeah. my new best friend. Yeah. And you want babies to be around older people and see what the world is. And that's part of the baby's development, too, even at that age. Yeah. 
great. Anyway. That's why people are so fucked up. It is beautiful out here. The air is so fresh, and all the trees and the grass. I grew up in rural Vermont. Kids throwing their bikes on the front lawn is not the country to me. You missed the horseshit, huh? <laughs> Don. So dinner's over, and there's a scream from the kitchen, or a, a group scream from the kitchen, a scream and laughter. And, and you could tell right away that this was the the counterpoint to the earlier scene where Pete gets up in the middle of the night and fixes the sink, and then we say, "Oh, and now it's burst and all that." <laughs> Don, here, hold my shirt, ladies, and he get you know gets under there and fights it off with the with the pot and he puts it over and then is able to do whatever he does under the sink and get it under control. And fully effortless, like just smooth and, you know. Doesn't hesitate. It also echoes back to the dinner conversation. This is where it's country versus suburbs comes up, right? Somebody says country and it's, well, it's really the suburbs. And Don is already mentioning yeah, I know what the country, I grew up in the country. I grew up with an outhouse. I grew yeah. up like this. This is the, Dick Whitman knows how to fix that sink. Don Draper looks good doing it. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Well said. So the Coe family claims it was them, Coe's Cobb, which became, through Yankee arrogance, Cost Cobb. Of course, it also sounds a lot like the Algonquin word for briefcase. <laughs> <laughs> the city kid calls the super. Right. Or, or, you know, takes five minutes to get his tools organized before. With, with the sports coat still on. It just, it just, the visual no, was Don great. No, Don leaps into action. He, he looks great. And Don, even though his character's moved from the suburbs back into the city, <laughs> still, uh, can leap into action and, and, and solve it before, before Pete Campbell has his tools laid out. Yeah. Well, Don spent a lifetime, you know, first in the, in the backwoods and then in the suburbs do, uh, doing that kind of stuff, yeah, you know, yeah, uh, building the, the P-L-A-Y-H-O-U-S-E, <laughs> you know, and I mean, he just was that guy. This to me is the turning point for Pete. This is where Pete feels emasculated by Don. And whereas he was this awkward fanboy uh, right up until this point, right, in the office getting Don to come, what's the line he says about Trudy? Uh, Pardon me, I wrote it down. So. Trudy will only act on a certain She only acts on a certain <laughs> I wrote it down too because it's gorgeous. <laughs> he's he's playing this role with Trudy of of Don, you're it's all you're the linchpin here. He goes from that guy to what happens later in the episode. And that that's why the the sink incident is so important. Because I think it's as we always talk about dominoes, it's where he's gone from admiring Don. And I think he always still admires Don, but he resents Don after this. You know, I said something in our eminently chewable uh, Patreon episode a little while back about sort of Lane's psychology. I played uh, armchair psychologist about Lane. And I'm going to do it again here for Pete. I'm going to say that Pete has Don on that pedestal and behaves so thirsty in order to resent him for emasculating him. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I'm not saying it's a, it, it's not a, a, an actual setup, like I'm going to have the sink go bad again so Don can fix it, right? Yeah, yeah. That's not what I'm, that's not, but I think, I think there's a way in which you put Don 
where you're putting Don. Don's not interested in being there. It's not like Don's a big brother to you or Don's a, you know, they've had their moments, but Don doesn't want any of that. And and was so smooth. We've always been wanting you to come here. He's like, what do you, <laughs> what do you mean? We talked to, we've been, we, this is long overdue, right? Don's smooth. Right. <laughs> but Pete is a walking resentment waiting to happen. So there was going to be some reason at some point, whether it was at the dinner or not, for Don to not live up to Pete's pedestal expectation of him so that Pete would feel emasculated because that's what Pete is. He walks around feeling that everyone is cutting his balls off. It's not Don not living up to the expectation. It's Don fully living up to the expectation. Right. Don is the right. Don. Sure. Don's the savior of of the sink. He's not the big brother. He's not the I'm going to take you under my wing. He doesn't kid. make Pete feel good about it. He's not going to care about Pete's feelings while he does it, and that's what Pete resents. Pete, Pete wants, you know, he can't help but not, but but he can't just look at it and go, thank goodness Don was able to fix it quicker than I could. He was right there and he leaped into action. Thank goodness for Don. He's saying, shit, here I am again. Number two. He showed me up in front of my wife. Right. Exactly. So the resentment, you're right. You're right about something was going to come along to do that. But Don does what Don does because he's Don. Put him on a pedestal. Don't put him on a pedestal. He's going to do the same thing. Right. But he wouldn't feel so. He wouldn't feel so full of rage if he hadn't had him in a particular role that Don never asked for. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And. I also contrast it at the same time with, you know, a moment ago it was Pete and the baby and Trudy and looking like this gorgeous family. Uh, maybe that was right after. I forget. It was right after the, the sink gets fixed. But they all come in ooh and ah over, over Tess. And look, it, you know, Pete says that one I take no responsibility for this and it's all true. And it's this beautiful family. It really is this gorgeous family in their nice new house out in the country or suburbs or whatever you want to call it, unless you're Pete and you're still worried about who fixed the sink, it really is this nice I have everything moment. And Pete, because he's Pete, does not feel pride. He feels humiliation. And humiliation hurts worse than pride feels good. You feel the humiliation more and deeper and longer than you feel the pride. So to me, that's what sets everything else in motion. So who knew that this would be the party that everyone would go home and have sex after? <laughs> Don but knew. That's, except for Pete. And except for Pete, I think that's what happened. Uh, oh, my goodness. Yeah. That was a cute little scene. and the With Don and Megan. Yeah. Yeah, right? That was her being Megan and him being Don. It was actually quite nice. That was cute. What about your war? I volunteered for combat on numerous occasions, but spent most of the war as a supply assistant in Rosyth. Well, everyone played their part. That was Britain at its best. Yes. We still have this business with Jaguar to to proceed with, right? So Lane is not muffed up, but he hasn't exactly closed the deal with Jaguar. And Roger and Don and Pete kind of jump in and say, we'll take it from here, cowboy. Thank you. And so they do. (laughs) That. Uh, it was funny at that that now dinner uh, client dinner number two now with Roger Pete and Don. As soon as I do, I do forget his name, but the the Jaguar guy, Edwin Baker. Yes, Edwin Baker. It's another great character name for sure. So as soon as Edwin says that he likes to get in trouble, <laughs> let's look for a good time. Roger immediately, you know, suddenly now there's a. In a sense, it is Roger's 
plan, right? That's Roger's strategy. Find out what problem you can solve. <laughs> what? <laughs> and, uh, and Roger's the man for that. And he was saying we could go to whichever hotel bar they were going to go to. And he's like, no, no, I'm in town. We need something more private. And Roger's like, oh, yeah, right. Oh, got that. <laughs> right. Roger, that, and that was Pete saying, Roger, I think that's your, I think that's your domain. Prostitution metaphor 962 on Mad Men. I also want to bring up one thing to something you said earlier. I know that over the years, there have there has been plenty of these antics or whatever you would call them. I am not convinced that there's been as much of it. And I am not convinced that Pete has done this before. I think Pete has always expected that at some point he'll do this. Roger hasn't done it in a while. I could be wrong. There's no evidence really either way. But my take was, again, Roger knows where to go. Pete doesn't. But Pete doesn't know where to go, right? So... Uh, I feel like this was a line, again, Pete was always willing to cross it. And and part of the metaphor of what we've already talked about is, yeah. you know, you, you you get everything from your job and you give everything to your job, to your job. And, and think to this, this night turns into an example of both for Pete, mm-hmm. or so he thinks. But I don't know. I, I do think, without getting into too much research on it, I, I do think that um, whether it was the Bethlehem Steel guy, where he stays over an extra night. I think there were a couple of instances where Pete was procuring. Yeah. Procuring is different than oh, going oh, to a whorehouse. Oh, you mean taking house. part in himself. I'm sorry. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't catch that. Yeah. We've brought dates. Yeah. I think it was a bit of a revelation in terms of Pete using the job for those purposes. Right. But <laughs> yeah, the horror, the, the, I'm just calling it the whorehouse. I don't know what the correct term is. The whore apartment, the, the whore condo, the, se- I'm not the sure, sex but, worker, the whole, yeah, I, whatever it may be called. Those women were great. They were. They, they were, were great. Everybody was great. They really were, and I wanted. I do want to talk about that, madam, for a moment too. <laughs> oh, she's fabulous. It was really fascinating. Obviously, it's Rogers. It's, it's on in Rogers' little black book. He takes them there. Certainly, Edwin is quick to pair up. Uh, Roger, quickly behind. And Pete and, and, you know, the look on Don, funny that, that camera angle, this is slattery, right? That camera angle when Pete is chatting up that woman that he ends up going in with and Don off to the side. I have rum in my room. Yeah. Right. But, but the focus is really on Don and his face. Uh, we don't, Pete's face is off to the side. I mean, we don't see Pete's face clearly, but we see Don's face in full and her face in full. You know, we're listening to this conversation. We're wa- really we're watching Don listen to Pete have this conversation, and he knows what's going on. Don's this guy. You just you just made it with his wife on the way home from <laughs> from the dinner. Uh, he's he's getting his needs met at home and at work, right? Like that. He's in no mood to go carousing. Don always had women on the side, and Don also always had the ability to say no. Right? Mm-hmm. Remember the twins? Yeah, the heart attack twins, <laughs> as I like to call them. <laughs> Um, as I've never called them before, but again, I don't think they go to houses of ill repute very frequently. I think mm-hmm. Roger has this up his sleeve, but Don doesn't look like he's been there before either. And I think because of his upbringing, because he, I don't think Don, I'm not finishing sentences. Yes. Don is happy at home. Don is currently being monogamous, whereas Don was not in the past. That's right. I don't think that Don 
in the past married to Betty would have gone with any of those nor, nor do I, but it's worth mentioning. That's also not Don's role. He might find himself in a situation like this now and again, but he's not the one with the number in the book. So I know who to call. That's Roger's job. It's also Peter's job. But it, in this case, it was Roger ready to go. And at Sterling Cooper, he was not out with the account guys mm-hmm. the way he is at SCP. All of it. Exactly. Exactly. But it wouldn't, it, the point is, it wouldn't be even new role, old role, new, new firm, old firm. Um, it would not be, no one would be looking to Don for this, this type of entertainment. Uh, Roger's a different story. I'm just saying, if they had dragged him, if they've dragged him along before, I think he still would have stayed at that bar. I agree. Even, uh-huh. even cheating Don I totally would have stayed agree. at that bar. I totally agree. Because the history, the, the evidence we do have is that Don does not mix these two things. As a practice. Maybe he has once or twice, but like, that's just, that's not the character that we've sort of come to know. I agree with you there. In this case, they're all there for for the reasons that we've described. It's us watching Don watch Pete, but it's also Pete knowing that Don is watching him have this conversation and being aware and exposed to, to Don's judgment in his mind. In his mind, the most important interaction he had of the night, fantastic sex worker aside, is Don. That was more important. Don, Don's judging him was what his takeaway is. It's wild. That's why that shot is shot that way. So that we know that Pete sees Don looking over at him. And the look on Don's face is not, not, <laughs> not inconspicuous. He's disgusted. And he's not – and that's the goes to the conversation that happens in the, in the taxi cab. Don's not disgusted with Pete because of what he's doing necessarily in and of itself. He's disgusted just as he says, I didn't think you were miserable. I didn't think you had to do this. Now, does Pete have a point or a case to look at Don and say, who the fuck are you? To be judging me, even though Pete was acutely aware that he was being judged, but to still say to Don, pull your pants up on the world, uh, does Pete have something of a point there? I don't know that he does, but I think it's an interesting scenario that we're in here. It's so hard to know because Pete is so unpure in his view, his filter. I mean, we all have filters. Every conversation is through a filter. Don is looking at Pete through a filter of, I finally married the right woman. And you and you are already married to the right woman, and you're going to fuck it up. Um, Pete's looking through the filter of everything we already talked about that he's got going on about Don and his own misery. Uh, so sure, he's got a point, but he's also pulling it out of him. <laughs> Don an, didn't say a word. He's initiating. Yeah. No. Don Don lives by a code, and the code is go home, take a shower, and forget about it. Yeah. It's one for Pete Don. Is like. Why are you judging me? Why are you judging me? And Don's like, what did I say? Okay, well, if you want to know why I'm judging you. So I say Don Don wins. Right, because he wasn't rubbing one. it in his face. He wasn't saying a word. Right. And, and, and the truth is, yes, Don is not cheating right now. But he was also being disingenuous when you talked about the reasons why he was cheating on Betty. But he doesn't know that yet. No, no, he doesn't. No, we know that. We know that. He does not. And, and the answer is he cheats because he's a sick person. I don't mean sick in the head. I mean, he's he's got a... He's addicted to sex, right? So there's, there's this, there's something that prevents him from just 
resisting all his impulses. I think that's oversimplifying. It's very oversimplified. Don cheats because Don cheats. He's not in control. And he's not cheating right now because he's not cheating right now. He thinks it's because Megan is the right woman and and Betty wasn't. Exactly. And and we know that that's not likely to be the case. We ought to know that that's not, not, not likely to be the case. But he puts that out there toward Pete and Pete wears his insecurities on his sleeve and Don does not. And that's why they approach this whole topic from completely different angles and with different remedies. Because Pete has to hear that everything's okay. Pete has to be told you're a good boy by Don in particular. And he's not going to get that. And Don doesn't. Don, 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 Don has no need for that. I suppose you know that Officer Logan says to say hello. I'm not a cop. Are you interested in someone who's already busy? Just waiting for my friends. In the condo of ill repute on the 38th floor. You know, Don has this interaction with the madam. And really, it's the first time that we hear, I think, that Don grew up in a place like this. I can't remember. This is where this is where I get a little sloppy. Yeah, I, so I think it's the first think? time that he just says it in so many words. Uh, but he says it. And so it connects him and this madam. And she's sort of like, do you want to go in? Are you looking for someone? She thinks he's gay. I know someone around the corner. And they kind of have this little bonding thing and all of probably three or four lines of dialogue about what should I do? Do I put a TV in? I mean, she's asking these questions of a stranger. And it's, it, listen, it's, first of all, it's Don with the busboy. Same thing. And Don can't not connect with people for someone who's so disconnected and so unfeeling and numb, as we've said, Don can't not connect with people, particularly people in an, in an underclass. That's who he connects with most easily. I mean, I don't see her as under, I know what you're saying, but she's also running that place. She's running she, that place. I don't she's see her boss. as the bus boy. No, no, no. I see her more as, as Connie Hilton, even though he doesn't, like he just, Perhaps. he just connects with people. Well, he connects with people. Yeah, fair enough. But but I'm saying it's it's never <laughs> he didn't like even Connie. He didn't connect with as Connie that first time. Everybody's it's always kind of a a uh, a common man approach, if you will. That Don seems to connect best with, best with people. That's my observation. Yeah, yeah, you're not wrong. Um, but but amazing. To, it was a beautiful touch that it was put in there. That's that's what I want to say about it. So back in the office, Oof. Lane gets a phone call and it's a doozy. <laughs> and I love Lane coming into the meeting and throwing Joan out. <laughs> That's <laughs> <No>. the first move. <laughs> and then we find out that Edwin <laughs> had gum in his Pubis. Is that how they, is that what they Pubis, said? Pubis, absolutely. Hilarious. <laughs> you know, not a pro move on his, his, his uh, escort. Rookie mistake. Part. Yeah, rookie, rookie mistake, move. yeah. <laughs> yeah, make sure you got the gum back. <sighs> this now goes back to Rebecca and, and is a reflection on him. And you guys have, you corrupted my friend <laughs> and ruined this account. And, you know, and probably threatened his marriage a little bit, too, even though he wasn't part of it. Mm-hmm. It's all it's all not good. It's a big pile of not good. It is Edwin's fault because what Lane fails to realize is that he was never going to close this account <laughs> to begin with. So there was no you ruined it. I had it on a great track and you ruined it. No, Lane, 
this is Edwin's fault. We did everything we were supposed to do to close it. This guy said it's yours to lose. You know, I'm giving you the business. I just want to go have fun. Well, go have fun, dude, but don't, you know, cut, cut, cut the chewing gum off before you go home. I mean, Lane genuinely thinks that he's been corrupted. Yes, he does think that. Then there's the teeing up of this fight. In his saying, Edwin would never do that, you've got Pete saying, well, he thought you were a homo. <laughs> Don has a great look of like, oh, that no, t- Pete, don't say That's too far. Uh, and not true, by the way. It was just something for Pete to say. He, Edwin did not say that. Uh, did he say it? No, I don't think he said that. It was, it, I wondered, it was a subtle, it could have been in there. All right. I didn't read that, but perhaps. All right. Which, you know, would have been the biggest insult possible and emasculating and all that. Mm-hmm. We, we don't need to get into that it was a different time and yada, yada, because we all understand that here. But it leads to this fight. Actual fight. I still wince a little bit at it because it's so preposterous. It is preposterous. Not that it wasn't executed well and fun to watch, but it's preposterous for a show that has realism in its DNA. It's interesting because, first of all, is like, is every week somebody going to threaten to punch out Pete until it happens? Yeah, right. Well. I do wonder if this is one of those things where somebody had a real story because it's so preposterous. I'd be beyond shocked if that was the case because it's that preposterous to me. I wouldn't. Maybe. Pete, you know, Maybe part of possible. You know, one of the things is like you're you're being nostalgic. You're talking about defending honor and old versus new, and it's very olden days. It's very old timey. Well, look how Lane sets up. It's it's medieval. <laughs> yeah, it's got the is what they said, right? You know, the fighting Irish stance. Yeah, yeah. So so I I th- I feel like it's not only is is Lane defending his honor and his masculinity, but somehow his his entire being, his entire history mm. is behind him. And this is what men do, except, you know, they don't, but they did. And they still do sometimes. And it, it was wild. I don't doubt that the grievance and the emotions behind it weren't plausible. Their entire, their, this whole thing is plausible for, for that reason. All the reactions from the characters are believable and frankly, brilliant in the way that it was all done. Uh, what I find unbelievable is that they're, you know, clearing clearing the decks for a fist fight in the middle of the of the floor. That's, to me, no. But whatever. Lane wins. <laughs> Lane wins. Roger had Lane. Yeah. And Lane goes into, no. Joan comes into Lane's office. And this is an interesting scene. Yeah. Lane's lying there. He's exhausted, right? He's beaten up. <laughs> and Joan comes in and, and is just really wonderful. And, and Ice bucket. And she's got the ice bucket. And when she reaches for his for his head, it's very tender. And it isn't like she's putting salve there or something. She just gives him a gentle and loving sort of stroke yeah. right there. And... You can interpret that as many ways as possible, but I didn't hate Lane for kissing her. Oh, I agree. In that moment. (laughs) He's got a lot coursing through his veins at the moment. It's not like she kissed him first or something. You know, she wasn't coming onto him, but you could see certainly in that day, in that moment and where he thought it was okay. And, And listen, that was a long kiss for a kiss that she didn't invite, that she didn't want. She didn't cut off the kiss. Agreed. The kiss just 
went she, she, to where it she went. She was very careful not to overreact. In fact, her reaction was beautiful understatement of gorgeous. Slowly getting up, open the door, sit back down, don't say a word, boom. I mean that's that's Joan getting uh getting Joey fired instead of firing him, right? It's the same instinct. <laughs> but really kind. He you know, she gets up and Lane of course thinks she's leaving and then she just opens the door we and think comes she's back. leaving. The view, right? We do, yeah. <laughs> it's, of it's beautiful. It's, it's shot gorgeous. wonderfully. He says, "I'm sorry," and she said, "For what? There's not anybody in here who didn't want to who, who didn't want to punch Pete." So she really she doesn't just say for what like we're pretending. She literally pretends she thinks he's talking about. Like she just moves on. She she right. She she is she is very very clearly getting past it and letting him know that she's getting past, it and it's not a thing. She is not. Removing one Jenga piece of his dignity. It's already been through enough today. She's, it was so kind. I agree 100%. And it was done wonderfully by both of them. All right. Let's take one more break. And when we come back, we're going to touch on um, Ken and Peggy. We have a pact. I love Ken and Peggy. I love this friendship. You know, everything we've said about work isn't about friends. Oh, also, I love how Peggy, how when the fight is happening and Peggy comes into Joan's <laughs> office, Joan's yeah. like, come here, come here. And, uh, you know, that's just a continuation of that of that uh, yeah. developed kinship that they have. Right. But anyway, the fight, sorry. The fight might have been unrealistic, but that was very realistic. Fantastic. <laughs> the early scene of Peggy kind of sitting at a counter breakfast counter and ken comes in with somebody she doesn't know and and it was really funny because it's not a current thing that you would expect that if you're seen dining alone you should be invited along right uh-huh. she was clearly the etiquette was clearly typically we would ask you to join us yeah yeah that is an old-timey thing that we don't do and she was miffed about it and then but then she's also figuring out oh this is some kind of business thing and of course she assumes he's courting another job mm. or being courted or whichever reasonable know. thought under the circumstances so then we get this next scene <laughs> and that's when we learn about the pact <sighs> yeah the pact the pact and we learned about Ken's writing i mean that was our tip off that yeah he's writing and there's a thing uh, just just the best 20 <laughs> on this story <laughs> the, i mean that's amazing right we get the, that volume. But yeah, she, we really see, you know, it's just a great, we talk about it all the time, how exposition is is fast forwarded with such a with such an economy of words. And what about the pact? The pact is still on. I go somewhere, to be you come with me. After that, yeah. And, and listen, I think as, as viewers and fans, we love Ken and Peggy's friendship. There's just uh, going back to the, the, the voiceover for, um, the relaxer. That's right. <laughs> um, it, it's a it's a wonderful, wonderful friendship that's never the center of the action. It's never examined further. There's never yeah. an episode where it gets explored. This is yeah. as far as we see it. it These is. little touch points all through the years, just like friendships are, just like brush work strokes. friendships are. Little brushstrokes. I, I agree. Uh, it is. It's wonderful. It's just perfect. It's perfectly delivered. And Kenny's great with it because Peggy is sort of eager it's it's a revelation how eager Peggy is to see if there's something else out there. That's what I took from it, too. Options always open. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's not always the case with Peggy. So here it was. All right. Well, that was 
Signal 30. <sighs> I'm still blown away. I think it's just underrated for me, maybe not by everybody else, but I still think it doesn't get its due across the board. It's hidden there somewhere behind the, the suitcases and the 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 wheels and so forth of, of the show. Well, and maybe behind the faraway places is... Yeah, that too, right? <laughs> Which Flashier is next, ones. next week. Maybe we'll talk about that next. Let's do it. All right, guys. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much. Bye now. If you would like to support the show, as many of our listeners do, go to patreon.com slash theycoineditpod. You get many bonus episodes and other treats. Another way to support us is to leave us a glowing review on Apple Podcasts. Email us at questions at theycoinedpod.com or on Twitter and Instagram at TCI Pod. They Coined It is produced and edited by Roberta Lip. Our logo and merch graphics are by Albert Stern of Stickrest Arts. Our theme is from Adam Tilford. Thanks again for listening. I'm Dan Jasper. See you next time.